Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture entitled Music and Architecture in Renaissance Venice by Professor Deborah Howard of Cambridge University. This lecture is the first of four public lectures that accompany the Frankie Seminar on Art and Music in Venice, held in the fall of 2011. I'm going to tell you about this research project, which was one of the most exciting things academically and uh, intellectually and personally, actually, that's ever happened to me. It was um, a most wonderful experience. And uh, I feel very, very strongly that we have to remember, I as an architectural historian have to remember that buildings are not just to look at, that buildings impinge on all the five senses. In the lecture room we tend to just use visual images, but buildings have textures, they have temperature, they have sound, uh, they have qualities that we tend not to give enough attention to, certainly in the historical dimension, when we're studying buildings. And likewise, you can find some very learned books on, on musicology that don't really pay very much attention to the places where uh, pieces were performed, but even more so on recorded sound CDs that you buy commercial CDs will tell you in very small print on the CD cover where the piece was recorded. They may be looking for a particular kind of acoustic, but in a sense you're not really meant when you're sitting in your living room to be thinking about where the music is being recorded because you're supposed to concentrate absolutely exclusively on the sound. And I, I, I'm going to try and show you that in a way I, I feel these belong much more closely together. Now, when we uh, got our grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the UK, uh, we, we had, uh, can't quite see the tops of the slides, I hope this isn't going to be a problem, um, but anyway. Uh, we set ourselves these questions. How far did architects consider acoustic needs when designing new churches? And how far did composers take account of the acoustics of the church when writing sacred music? Well, in fact, as we worked into this project, we found that the second question was very, very difficult, except in the case of St. Mark's, because once printing began, the composer lost control over where his piece was performed. So, in a sense, the first question ended up being much the more interesting. Now, the very important thing about the whole project was that it was interdisciplinary. Uh, and we uh, teamed up with musicologists or musicians and acousticians and architectural, history, architectural historians. And uh, Laura Moretti and I were the architectural historians with advice for, for, from other people. Now, um, our main acoustics advisors, one uh, acoustic laboratory in Venice and one in Cambridge, are these two. These two people here uh, did a follow-up project, which I'm going to interweave with what I'm going to talk about now, so that you can see uh, how the subject is being taken forward um, and can be taken forward into the future. So the first thing we did, really, was to get together a team of musicologists, architectural historians, and acousticians, none of whom knew each other, none of whom had ever addressed each other, to have a conference. We had it on the island of San Giorgio in Venice, which you saw in the very introductory slide. Uh, it was a huge success. The uh, people got on really well together, found they really liked each other and were interested in what the others had to say. 
And with the wonderful help of my collaborator, Laura Moretti, who is a professional cellist and an architect, as well as an architectural historian, a woman of very many talents, um, we managed to publish the proceedings in absolutely record time within about six months of the, 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 the um, conference. Uh, and it sold out almost immediately, so you can't buy it anymore. But uh, it's in, in, in two languages. And this, this laid out the state of the field at the beginning of our project. And a year later, we got the same team back to Cambridge again, um, and we invited them to advise us on how to conduct our choral experiments in a group of selected churches uh, in Venice. Now, our main interest was in the 16th century, so we've got uh, the, the surviving churches of San Sovino, uh, all of them here, the San Martino, San Zulian, and San Francesco della Vigna, San Marco, of course, is the most important center of musical innovation in Venice uh, in the period. And then we looked at various different types of churches. Uh, the Redentore is, is put in here because it was actually um, officiated, it was assigned to the Capitan Order, although it was paid for by the state, so it has a slightly anomalous position. The hospitals are in there because they're very, very important, as I'm sure everybody knows here, uh, for the musical education that they gave to the female orphans who were housed uh, as one of the functions of these hospitals. Um, we didn't look at the fourth hospital, the Pietà, because its um, present church is, is far too late for our research. And the Incurabili, which is destroyed, we investigated through a virtual reconstruction. Uh, so this is the book, um, as, uh, as you see here, and you can... Um, listen to the music tracks uh, on your computer as you read the book. Uh, so this is preferred by the publishers to putting a CD in the book because people take them from the bookshops and then the books have to go back to the publishers. So this seemed to be the best way to do it. Um, and the follow-up project, um, which was um, supervised by Malcolm Longer, who also wrote the technical appendix and happens to be my husband, and the, uh, a young graduate student um, who rejoices in the name Braxton Boren. Uh, Braxton apparently was a professor of, of America, of the United States. Not a very well-known one, but he was named after the, uh, was a, uh, sorry, a president of the United States. He was named after some President Braxton. I don't know who that is. Anyway, uh, we uh, were interested in what factors would affect the acoustics in different churches, such as the different kinds of ceilings or vault structures. So we had Gothic vaults. We used the Frari as an example of a, an, an, an earlier church, which was then used in the 15th, 16th centuries for uh, more adventurous kinds of music. We were interested in flat coffered ceilings because they were believed to be very good for the spoken voice at the time, and we showed, in fact, that that was true. Uh, mosaic domes, low mosaic domes behave very differently from high smooth domes. So we were interested in all these kinds of things and we were also interested in materials and furnishings. For example, if you hang tapestries in a church, which was done for festive occasions, you would um, reduce the reverberation time, increase the clarity of the music as you'll hear later. Carpets um, caused great problems to the singers. There were a lot of carpets in the churches the week we did our choral experiments because it was Easter week and the churches put out their best carpets and it's horrible singing on a carpet. But that was one thing that interested us and also wooden uh, choir stalls, uh, the effects of different kinds of um, floors and so on. 
Um, we had, of course, to do a parallel program of historical research, and I'll, I'll more or less put this out as a given, uh, but this was work that was going on meantime while all the other aspects of the research were going on. Um, we measured the acoustics scientifically of all the churches we were interested in um, using um, a machine that made um, sounds of all frequencies. Sort of, sort of like a siren almost. So we had to have warning signs outside the churches to warn tourists that strange things were going to happen. And then we had this very, very sensitive, tiny little all-round microphone uh, which would re um, record all-round sound. And we recorded a lot of different parameters of the sound, such as the clarity and whether the sound was coming from a vertical or horizontal direction, um, how, much, how long the reverberation time was, um, and so on. And here is one of our acoustic advisors looking terribly proud of his equipment here uh, with his computer in front of him. So we had, we had objective measurements of the acoustics of all the churches. And then we did this program of live choral experiments. Now, um, you could argue, and some um, reviewers have argued, that an English uh, Anglican choir might not sound quite like a Renaissance um, Italian uh, or Venetian choir. Uh, we don't think this matters very much for the research we were doing because essentially we were doing comparisons between the acoustics of different churches. So long as we had the same people singing in each church, that was what really mattered because then we could make comparisons about the sound. Um, we tried, of course, to use the most authentic uh, editions of the music and to use the correct repertoire and so on. Um, and we had incredibly musical singers. I mean, these guys can sing 15-part polyphony at sight, no problem. And we couldn't find a choir in Italy that could do that. So I, I feel justified in using perhaps a slightly inappropriate, um, certainly not one we could afford anyway. I'm not saying there aren't Italian choirs that can do this, but, um, you know, I happen to have this choir in, in my college, so that seemed to be the obvious thing to do. Now, I should also say, before any of the music comes, that none of the music was rehearsed. Um, and mostly, although they're posing for the photograph here, they were very casually dressed. So you might feel that they look a little bit irreverent. But they threw their hearts and souls into it. And the singers were absolutely marvelous. We took questionnaires from the singers about what they felt about the acoustics uh, in the churches. And more importantly, uh, we analyzed the responses of the public we put posters all over Venice, giving the timetable, explaining what we were doing in different churches. Uh, we got in touch with all the people we knew who might be interested, and we had sort of random collections of people, ladies of the parish who'd come to find out what was going on, friends of ours, parents of the singers, boyfriends of, of the singers or girlfriends, um, a, a, a huge range of people. Um, and here I am in the church of the Redentore trying to explain uh, in two languages to the people in the audience how they're to fill in the questionnaires, um, which uh, was, we came back with a suitcase full of questionnaires, which we then um, examined. And I think one of the very, very important parts of this research, and this is a really crucial point about it, is that this is the first time, to, as far as we're aware, that any research project has compared or analyzed the relationship between subjective and objective acoustic perceptions. So we could, we could see whether when the audience felt the sound was clear, 
the acoustic measurements also showed the sound was clear. And we found a remarkable correspondence, as I'll show you later. Um, so each of the questionnaires was done numerically. So you had to um, grade your sense of how much warmth there was from 1 to 10, or how much intimacy, or, or, or it, it's been cut off at the top here. These are the really important ones here. Um, and I can't see what it says, probably you can't. I, um, well, I've got it here. This is loudness, this is clarity, and that's reverberance. So those, in a sense, are the most important ones. Now, you can see that most of these have a peak distribution, so the perceptions are not totally random. Uh, they couldn't quite get echo. People thought echo was the same thing as reverberation, which, of course, it isn't, because echo is when you get a complete um, repetition of the sound coming back later. Uh, but the crucial thing about these is that this arrow here was the judgment of Rafalovsky, one of our acousticians. So, in a sense, he knew what the right answer was. And I think you'll see, as you can't see in the top here, but in the top top row, these two, they got the peak is exactly in the right place. And mostly, I think our, our, our audience had pretty good judgment. So this was interesting as well, because our audience were not people with experience of making acoustic judgments at all. They were a very, very random set of people of all ages and different nationalities and some tourists as well. Now, I'm going to have to go very fast, not, uh, not least because we started late, uh, so it will be a bit of a gallop. But I want, first of all, to start, of course, with the Church of St. Mark, San Marco, which is the, uh, in a sense, the tremendously uh, creative source of much musical innovation of Renaissance Italy. Uh, under the uh, patronage of the Republic, St. Mark's, of course, was not the Cathedral of Venice until the 19th century, but the Chapel of the Doge, the figurehead of the Republic attached to the Doge's palace. Um, the composers uh, that we used were mainly these ones. Adrian Villat, who is the person who is supposed to have introduced split choir singing to San Marco, um, and uh, his very distinguished successors, Andrea Giovanni Gabrielli and Claudio Monteverdi. You will all know these people. So I don't need to remind anybody here of the... Um, form of St. Mark's, although it's called a basilica, it's not really a basilica in architectural terms, it's a quincunx, a five-domed uh, Greek cross church, uh, all lined with mosaics and marbles um, inside, and, and, and a, a, a beautiful example of a Western Byzantine architecture. Now, um, in front of the iconostasis, or the choir screen here, are two pulpits, this one which was used for singing the gospel and the epistle and for preaching, and then this big pulpit here, known as the Bigonzo, uh, shown here in Canaletto's painting, hung with draperies for um, a, a, an Easter festivity. Uh, originally, this was used uh, for the doge to make public appearances with the important um, advisors. Already by the beginning of the 16th century, we know from travelers' reports that it was being used for singers. And um, during the 
stowedship of Andrea Gritti, whom you see in this wonderful portrait by Titian, which you probably know from the National Gallery in Washington. Um, what Titian does very cleverly is to draw our attention to this extraordinary face, a man of real determination and energy. But what he doesn't reveal is that he was rather overweight and um, his belt is on the last hole here, you can see. Um, and he also suffered from gout and he was therefore unable to get up the little staircase at the back of the Bigonzo. And during the early 1530s, um, the ducal throne was moved from the place outside, just outside the choir screen, into the choir. And this involved a complete reorganization of the choir, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, but this then sort of, in a sense, freed up the Bigonzo for uh, singers. And you can see in this painting, in this drawing by Canaletto, which he inscribed very proudly at the bottom, done at the age of 68 without spectacles. Um, he, you see these singers with a great big mass book in front of them singing. They're facing into the choir because that's where the doge and the important people are. Uh, I want to play you this piece because I, I love it to bits. It's, it's about fear and trembling and uh, the way that the, 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 the voices, the, 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 the melody, if you like, moves up and down, gives you this wonderful impression of a tremulous sort of religious experience. I think it needs to be quite a lot louder. As loud as you can. It's up in on maximum already. a lot more sound. We weren't able to try it out beforehand. Anyway, um, it, 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 it doesn't matter too much. You get, you get the idea. One of the things that we did was to record all our recordings at constant volume so that you could tell when things were um, uh, softer or louder by comparing the different recordings. So, um, when the East End was rearranged, the ducal throne was moved to there and the pews for the important dignitaries of state were placed here, and the clergy were moved, of course, up to the east end around the high altar. So there was already a singing gallery in this position, um, but it became obscured by the pews. So Sansovino built another singing gallery on top, um, and then very soon afterwards built a matching one on the other side, uh, and they're both labeled P, they're called Pergoli. Um, and it, it, we uh, suggest in our book um, that this was probably the place where Villets split choir pieces for two choirs in a sort of conversation were actually performed. It doesn't mean that all chorus bezzato music was performed there forevermore after that, but during Villets' lifetime, we believe that this is the place that was used, and it worked very well for that. Um, you can see in this 
painting which is taken from the south. I'm sorry we're losing all the top of the slides, but anyway, it's taken from the south side here looking towards that way. Here's one of the new singing galleries. Uh, the pews are covered up because this is an important festivity with tapestries. There is the doge's throne there. Um, and here is, here, there's the pergola. And behind the artist, as it were, here is the matching one. So this is singers in one of the pergoli. Um, and you can see quite well here the old one because the pews have now been taken away. They were finally removed in the 1950s. Uh, but there would have been pews in front of here. So this is the new pergola. Um, this is Laura, my, my collaborator. This is Ian Fenlon, who was advising us, and that's me looking quizzical and listening to it. So if, if we just play um, a, a small extract from this Coro Spezzato motet, um, you should be able to, and I'm sorry it's so quiet, but you should be able to hear a dialogue between the two sides of the room if everything will, works according to plan. Um, it, it's cut off there because um, obviously I, I, I haven't got time to play you, you know, all of every piece. But you should be able to hear that there were there were a sound coming from both speakers. That's why I was trying to check uh, that they're in a sort of conversation, but also that it's fairly well articulated. You can actually hear the separate voices, even though you're in a big domed space. Remember that the mosaic tiles are set slightly roughly, they're not entirely smooth, so they sort of twinkle, and this has a very beneficial effect on stopping awkward um, reverberations circulating around in the dome. It definitely improves the acoustics, and the space in the choir, screened off by the iconostasis, as I'll show you in a minute, acts almost as a sort of self-contained acoustic volume, so that it doesn't behave like a big church. From, that was recorded from the doge's throne, the doge, what we call the doge's position, he always got the best sound. Recordings taken from the nave are not nearly so good. So this is an example of um, how we put in the positions of all the listeners, because in the questionnaires you had to mark a cross of where you were sitting. Um, we would have loved to have had more people. St. Mark's wouldn't allow us to have more than 50 people, and we had to turn away lots and lots, even though there was masses of room for them. So that was a great shame, because we had you know, at least 100, 150 people who wanted to come in. But anyway, um, there, there, there they are, the ones who filled in the questionnaires. And these are all our microphone and um, uh, 
uh, all the positions for our acoustic measurements and so on. So for each church, we did one of these diagrams. Now, this is the follow-up project. And when sound is pr produced from the pergoli, this is where it goes. And you can see, I think, that a lot of it stays in, in the choir, which is this area up here. I started again. See, it, 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 it changes color as it moves through the space, but you see how much of it just stays in here. And then if you're outside, you hear eventually rather delayed and indistinct sound, but the sound for the important people, that's the doge, the foreign ambassadors, you know, the high dignitaries of state, the procurators, they would have heard very, very well. Now, um, it's a gallop, I'm afraid, but um, I was, will just say something very briefly about one of the island monasteries, uh, San Michele in Isola. The other one was San Giorgio Maggiore, which is equally fascinating. Um, we went here because we were interested in the properties of a flat coffered ceiling, which was believed to have, at the time, to have very good um, properties for speech, and this proved to be the case. Um, you can just see the coffered ceiling at the top here. It also is one of the few churches that has a surviving a raised choir gallery across the nave, which was used by the Camaldolese friars uh, for their own private um, devotions, and we recorded all this. And then afterwards, I said, let's go and try the acoustics of the Emiliani Chapel, which is a little burial chapel on the corner, built in the 1530s. Um, and uh, the choir went in and they sang some palestrina, and it was very nice. And then they said, we must sing Mouton. Now, this was only our adult male singers. We didn't have the, the sopranos here. Um, and I said, fine, let's do it. And this turned out to be one of the most unforgettable moments of the whole uh, week of choral experiments because this is a chapel dedicated to the Virgin. Um, it has a, a very small, it's a very small building with a dome built in igloo fashion of solid stone uh, with no cover on top. It's, it's simply made of stone blocks. And being so small and sort of resonant, it was the most exquisite acoustic. And this piece is one of the most electrifyingly beautiful pieces. And it's all about the virgin not knowing a man, in a sense, being a virgin. And around the wall are these sculptures of the life of the virgin. Now, because it's so small, you could, couldn't sing to an audience in a place like this. But for those actually singing in, I'm not saying that this piece was ever sung there necessarily, but for anybody singing a mass in there, it's an extremely penetrating and gorgeous sound. And you may be able to see um, a knee there. Of This is Laura sitting on the ground just in front of the recording engineer. And I was actually outside when this happened. I came in afterwards, and she was sitting there with tears running down her cheeks. And she's not an emotional person at all. So I... I hope that you can um, get some sense of how absolutely beautiful this was.
I love the way you get these falling phrases, and then you get some others coming up from below, and then another one falling down like that. It's quite magical. Anyway, so that's uh, just a very brief word about that church. Now, I'd say something about the friaries. Now, these were the big preaching churches, enormous volumes. Um, the Church of the Friary, which was the first one I'm going to talk about, you know, has a great big Gothic vault on top, and really... Um, resonant acoustics, a re reverberation time about eight seconds. Now, um, it has still the uh, Friars Choir in its original position at the head of the nave. In most Italian uh, ch uh, churches, choirs have been moved from the Counter-Reformation period onwards to other places away from from the nave to partly to allow more space for preaching and partly to um, improve the you know view of the altar and so on for the congregation but this creates again as in St. Mark's a sort of church within a church for the private worship of the Franciscans themselves and we actually had a concert there now this is nothing to do with our research this was simply St. John's choir showing off um, in Venice. But I want to show you this because I think it's absolutely amazing. These red figures, life-size, in front of Titian's glorious painting of the Assumption of the Virgin, these life-size red figures in long robes, and they're singing Assumpta Est Maria, which you can see in the painting. So um, see what you think of this. So here you can see how the, the choir screen uh, frames Titian's wonderful altarpiece, and this is the inside of the choir stalls, and we did lots of experiments with singing uh, in the choir, and we also put singers on top of the choir next to the organs because I think that's probably where polyphonic music was performed on important feast days in the Ferrari, from the, certainly in the 16th century. Now, um, this acoustic, to my mind, is completely terrible. It might be better if the church was full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, but um, see what you think. I mean, I've occasionally had people come up to me after a lecture and say, but that was the most beautiful of all. But if you're trying to listen to the polyphony, and here, eight parts here, um, you, it's very, very difficult. 
It's so resonant that all the harmonies get blurred and each sound drags on into the next note. And I mean, it, it's, it, it is not a satisfactory musical um, uh, performance, I don't think, although the singers quite liked it because they were really quite close to the vault and they had the sound coming back to them quite quickly. Now, um, I, we class the Redentore in this group, although, of course, it's, it's not really a mendicant church in the traditional sense in that it wasn't built by a group of friars for their own use. It was paid for by the Venetian state, as I'm sure most people know here, uh, as a votive gesture uh, during the Great Plague of 1575 to 6, hoping uh, that... that God Almighty would deliver Venice from the plague on the, uh, with the promise that the Doge would visit the church every year uh, for a great solemn mass on the anniversary of the last case of the plague, which happened to be the last Sunday in July. And it's still celebrated to this day. That's just the position of the church. So it's on this island, and a bridge of boats was built and still is built uh, for the Festa del Redentore, for people to attend the mass um, on, on, on the feast day. So in a sense, you've got a church that's quite inappropriate for the very austere Capuchin monks who still uh, live there and uh, who didn't like it at all. They thought it was far too grand uh, and lavish. And in deference, sorry, in deference to their wishes, their choir, which is screened behind this wonderful uh, curved colonnade by Palladio uh, is completely unadorned. And that's where they would have sung almost certainly in plain chant. I don't think um, Capuchins would have sung polyphony because it was thought to be far too dangerous and seductive um, by very, very uh, reformed religious groups at that time. But when the ducal party came for the great ceremonies, um, that would have taken place around here uh, as in St. Mark's, with the, the, the choir and, and the clergy and the uh, dignitaries of, high dignitaries of state all occupying the same space under a dome, and then a sort of arena, kind of almost like a, uh, a theater uh, for, for the public, uh, the rest of the congregation in the nave. Now, Palladio, of course, was tremendously interested in harmonic proportion and in... in, in, in had many friends who are interested in music. Um, and, but there is, I am quite sure of this, and I can argue it later if anybody's interested, but there is no connection whatsoever between harmonic proportion of buildings and good acoustics. You can make relations between harmonic proportions and harmonies in music, but that's not the same thing. Um, and really, when you listen to um, a 15-part mass performed uh, in this area, uh, the, the acoustics, as you'll hear, are quite problematic.
you hear how reverberant that is? I mean, you can't hear the 15 parts, possibly. Um, so this is very puzzling. Um, it, it, it worked better with um, sort of smaller groups of forces, putting half in each of the apses, but still very, very reverberant, quite a challenge. Uh, and if you imagine that for this great festive ceremonial for the Festival of Redentore, the whole choir of St. Mark's would have accompanied the ducal party to the Redentore, so we know they would have been singing elaborate festive music. Now, here I'm going to bring in um, the project uh, that um, Braxton Boren did, because he made virtual reconstructions of a series of these churches, including this one and St. Mark's, which you've seen. Um, it's quite a complicated thing to get this very, very complex space in, in, virtual, uh, in virtual reality, because it's, it's not simply a case of putting a camera in and taking all angles so that you can navigate around. You've got to make an acoustic volume that doesn't have any holes that the sound can't get out, because then you can put in reconstructions, reconstructed sound. You can do oralizations afterwards. So this was the purpose of it. it this kind of virtual reconstruction uses a software called Odeon, which is developed in Denmark, and it doesn't need all the little details of the capitals and everything to be put in. You simply put in a coefficient for an elaborate piece of carving. So you don't need to reconstruct everything exactly. You just need to get the main shape. Um, and the idea was to put into it, uh, after we'd done the um, virtual uh, reconstruction, an anechoic recording. So I'm just going to play a little bit of this so that you can hear what it sounds like. This is recorded in a dampened room, so you'll hear the consonants very, very clearly, and absolutely no reverberation at all, except for the reverberation. Cantate Domino, canticum novum, cantate, 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 benedicite nomine eos, cantate Domino, canticum novum, Cantate, cantate. Don't, don't want to hear any more of that. It's not very nice. Anyway, um, this is the Redentore when it's empty. And you see how the, the arch at the end of the nave makes a very theatrical sort of proscenium arch. And this is the arena um, where the, 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 um, the liturgy would have been enacted. Now, this is the or oralized version. And you can see that it looks pretty bare because it didn't need... Um, to, to put in all the details, you simply put in coefficients. So these sort of blocks here just mean pews, but they're empty pews in this case, um, or they probably didn't have pews. I mean, it's actually an empty space, but um, these will be filled with people, as you'll see. So this is the empty church, and you'll hear, I think, that it's very, very similar to the Jubilatia Deo that we just heard. Uh, very, very reverberant, uh, but quite loud as well, or relatively loud. I think. Um, it's gone. Okay, so this is the virtual Redentore when we filled it with, uh, with what we know to have been put in stands for extra people to sit, 
um, lots of hangings, tapestries, um, you know, carpets laid over things. They didn't use carpets much on the floor, but we, we sort of filled it with draperies. Um, and more importantly, with an audience, lots and lots and lots of people in heavy robes. So this is, this is um, here, uh, this thing across here is just an abstract representation of the audience. And this is, to my mind, it's a lot quieter because a lot more of the sound is absorbed. But at last, you can really hear the music. And you get enough resonance for it to sound beautiful. Anyway, so, um, sorry, you see that, um, that, that the follow-up project was able to demonstrate something that we had sort of suspected and hinted at in the book, but hadn't really been able to show, that what seemed to be absolutely disastrous acoustics for anything except plain chant, I mean, the monks, uh, or the friars' plain chant was very beautiful in the, in the, um, in the, in the choir behind the high altar, but anything under the dome sounded really difficult, terribly difficult musically, very difficult for the singers. Couldn't hear each other, they could barely, you know, it was, it was awful. But that if you really filled it up with a, a great crowd of people involved in a major state ritual, it would sound um, a great deal better. Now, um, the parish churches, I'm going to say very little about them because of lack of time, but um, what is very noticeable about them is that they're much less resonant. Um, and here is what a really dry acoustic sounds like. I mean, this church was absolutely decked with its Easter hangings, so it's, it, there's almost no reverberation at all. And this piece relies on very effective rests in the, in the music. Um, and you'll hear that the sound just cuts off dead. Uh, these are two tenors with the organ, they're singing in the organ gallery uh, just over the main door. Parish churches did have music performed in them, whatever the parish could afford. They would buy some music and hire some singers and play the organ and so on. But mostly they were used for very small uh, co local congregations for things like baptisms and, um, and, 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 and 
commemoration masses for pe people who died for, for confession, uh, for a certain extent for festivities for small squale, who were um, little guilds that had altars in the churches. Um, but but the, the sound in the, in, the, in the parish churches was much, much, much less resonant. Finally, the hospitals. Now, th these are particularly fascinating because over the centuries, the hospitals modified their acoustics to improve them because they realized that having really beautiful music, even though it was liturgical music, um, was a great money spinner because the people who came to hear the, the orphan, orphan musicians would give arms to the hospitals. So they worked a way to make the acoustics as beautiful as they could. And this is particularly wonderful in the case of the Ospedaletto, which I think had the most beautiful acoustics of any uh, church that we looked at. Uh, this is a, a conventional shoebox. And remember that many of the best concert halls in the world, like the Boston Symphony and the Musikverein and so on, are shoebox shaped. Um, and the choir in this case is the, the orphans were hidden from public view by this sort of grill behind a parapet up here. So they sounded like sort of angelic voices, these female orphans. Um, and one had the extraordinary experience of the sound sort of descending from above and enveloping you. Now, um, I am unrepentant that we used boys instead of girls because we didn't have girls in our choir. But it has been shown in blind testing that before the age of puberty, most listeners, in fact, all listeners, can't really tell the difference. So here are the nine boys pretending to be girls uh, singing up in the organ gallery. know there were nine children singing there would you because they, they're so musical they sing uh, it, it, this was, it was electrifying absolutely extraordinary and what was absolutely fascinating was that in the follow-up project when um, a virtual reconstruction was made of this church let me show you it looks horrible I mean you you'd never put that up on a, on a website as you know now you can kind of navigate your way around this it's not meant for that it's simply meant to show, you know, each of these different pieces is given a different coefficient depending on the materials and how much relief there was and how, you know, how much detail to, to um, uh, reflect or, or absorb sound. And, th and these are people here. So uh, this, is, this is the sort of abstract representation of it. And here is sound come, you know, being projected through the building from the singing gallery. And it changes color depending on the number of times it's been reflected 
um, from something, you see. So what is particularly extraordinary is the next one I'm going to show you because then you understand why this building had this extraordinary effect of wrapping you up in the sun that seemed to descend from on high and envelop you. Uh, something it's very difficult to describe. It was totally sort of transforming to hear. And look at this. See what happens. See how it comes down like rain from the ceiling. So, um, I'm going to wrap this up now because um, it, it's, it's, it's after six o'clock. But um, let me show you these charts, which are quite complicated to understand. This is the, the, the young man um, who is a summer job, put all our, uh, he's an engineering student, put all our figures into, into the databases. Um, this is the most reverberation, and this is the least reverberation in these diagrams. And they're given different colors according to the type of church. So the green ones are the monasteries and friaries. The red is St. Mark's. Uh, the blue are the hospitals. And the yellow are the parish churches. Now these sort of outliers here are um, measurements that were made in little chapels in big churches, which behave more like small churches than big ones. So, um, you know, this, for example, is a very enclosed chapel in a very big church. So that's why it's, it's so unresonant. But um, what you can see very clearly is that they're, they're grouped by typology, which we really hadn't expected particularly before we started this project. So the most reverberant are the big churches. Of course, sound has a big part, uh, uh, volume. The volume in, in the sense of size is a very, very important uh, parameter in determining the acoustics. The bigger the volume, the more resonant the space. Um, you know, you're if, you, if, 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 if you sing in a, in a telephone booth or something, you're never going to get much resonance from it. Um, but the San Marco is pretty acceptable for um, resonance. It's quite reverberant, but not disastrously so. The parish churches are really much better for the spoken voice and not particularly good for music, which in a sense reflects, I think, some of their parochial functions. Uh, but the best, by far, around three-second reverberation, um, are the hospitals, which were the the churches that were deliberately constructed to make a good acoustic and modified over the centuries to make a good acoustic for uh, music because that brought them more revenue. So in a sense, they had, they had a real incentive. And so the, the, the point to really to emphasize is that the liturgical use of the buildings, um, which determined their form in every sense, um, spatial uh, and visual as well as acoustic actually gave very different results for different types of devotion, different types of religious institution, different types of liturgy. So um, the conclusions in as far as one can summarize them very, very briefly would be something like this. 
um, but the acoustic characteristics closely followed their typology and liturgical needs. Um, and that the later follow-up project really supports our suspicion that the very large churches um, are much less difficult acoustically uh, when they're full up, as they would have been on great state festivities uh, in Renaissance Venice. So thank you very much for listening. This lecture by Professor Deborah Howard of Cambridge University was delivered as the first of four public events intended to accompany the Frankie Seminar on Art and Music in Venice. Established by Richard and Barbara Frankie, the Frankie Seminars and Lectures are intended to introduce important topics in the humanities to a general audience and to share the work of distinguished visiting scholars. Professor Howard's public lecture took place at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on September 15, 2011.